The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, uh, through much of June and July, I've been reflecting. The general topic has been something like the liberating potential of awareness. What is the liberating potential of awareness? And uh, that's something, I mean, the idea, of course, is to check that out for ourselves. What's the big deal about mindful awareness, present moment awareness? Because it would be nice for each of us to know for ourselves, like, oh yeah, this is really helpful. Makes sense that in the busyness of our lives, in the busyness of my life, somehow to get this value of being present to the top of the list. Because, you know, we, there are a lot of competing interests that we have in life. I got to exercise, I got to eat right, I want to learn Spanish, you know. We, and so this, like, discovery that, oh, because it's subtle, right? It's not like the same as you know, losing weight or doing this or doing that, learning Spanish, we have something to show for it, but building the habit to be present more and more, to have that more and more the dominant habit of our mind, like the default habit. We may get distracted, something, you know, triggering happens, we get lost in thought, but because of the training and the valuing, the habit of the mind is to come back and Back to the, like what we mean by being present means recognizing this is being known. So remember, being present doesn't look any particular way. Right? So we can't tell if someone's being present. Like they might be really hot and bothered, but they may be aware being hot and bothered is like this. So outwardly, we might pick up that that person's kind of in a bit of a storm, a reactive storm. They're losing it. But that doesn't mean that the person isn't aware. Oh yeah, I'm losing it. It feels like this. My mind's like this. This is what's being felt and known. And the same thing, we might notice that somebody looks really serene and calm but they might be just sleepy or dull, you know, or they're really sort of seemingly on the outside, like, present, but they're just totally absorbed in some obsession. I can put the flower pot over here. Now, should I get cedar decking or this new manufactured wood for my deck? You know, and just lost in deep thought, but outwardly, they might look like, oh, that person is really present. You know, the body's calm, they're not moving, but they're just lost in thought. Some obsessive pattern. So we can't really know, I mean, we, we might get some clues, we might have an educated guess, but we can definitely know for our own mind. Like, and that's, that's kind of like homework. Do, does this mind know the difference between distraction and being present? What is that 
like being distracted, being caught up, identified with the thinking process, or lost in thought, we usually say, right? What does it mean when the mind is awake, is aware of what the mind is doing, what the mind is knowing? Not controlling what the mind is doing and knowing, but aware, oh yeah, this is what the mind is thinking, or this is what the mind is seeing or hearing. But it's a non-judging, it's really an affectionate kind of an awareness. So I've been talking about this now for many weeks, again next Sunday, and then I'm gone for two Sundays teaching on the East Coast, but we have some great teachers teaching. Uh, Shelley Graff is going to teach the first Sunday in August, and then uh, Stacy McClendon, another one of our teachers, will teach the second Sunday in August, and I'll be back then after that. But tonight I thought I'd share um, what I think is a nice set of teachings from Thich Thich Nhat Hanh. He's this uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk who died about a year and a half ago, very well known. He uh, led the Buddhist delegation to the Paris Peace Talks in the late 60s because of the Vietnam War. Some of you might remember those years. (coughs) And when he left Vietnam, which he was a peace, a, a monk, a Buddhist monk, but also a peace activist, and nobody liked him. The Viet Cong didn't like him, the South Vietnamese government didn't like him, the U.S. military force you know, leaders didn't like him. So when he went with some other Buddhist monks to the Paris Peace Talks, they didn't let him back into Vietnam afterward, which was fortunate for us in the West, because he ended up teaching for many, many decades here in the West. And he's written a number of books, and quite well-known. I've had the opportunity to practice with him. And a long time ago, he wrote this book, Transformation and Healing, which is about the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness of breathing. But in that book, um, and I think it has a new title when they republished it more recently. I mean, this is like decades ago when it first came out. Um, He has, I believe it is, five principles of mindful awareness. And I find them really helpful in helping us understand what do we mean by being present. And I know it's simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy to understand. Sometimes what's really simple is really a little hard to sense. I mean, we know the word awareness or mindful awareness or being present. One example that one of my, a different teacher of mine, um, Saito Tejaniya, a Burmese monk, he would have us like hand touch the leg. I mean, it could touch anything, right? But just notice what your hand is touching. And that experience of touch, like, can, isn't it possible to remember that the touching is being known? But the touching, whatever that experience, you know, the warmth of our hand on the thigh, or maybe you're feeling the pressure, the weight of the hand, maybe there's a little movement in your hand and you're noticing that experience of movement. So whatever it is that you're experiencing, the important thing is to remember, to see if you can remember that it's being known, that the touching of your hand, touching whatever it's touching, 
that that experience is being known. Not so much that you're knowing it, but that there is a knowing. That you can know that it's being known. You can be aware that touching is being known. Just like you can be forgetful, you can be unaware. The touching is still happening, but you could, in a sense, we say, be a billion, billion miles away, lost a thought about something. Touching is still there, the sensations are still, in a sense, being felt, but the mind is not remembering that this experience is being known, being felt. And so we can do with a specific training object, like in this case, touching, or feeling the breath coming in, or hearing. But in daily life, you know, there are going to be a lots of different objects because we're not going to have, often at least, a meditation object that we keep in mind. So it's, in a sense, whatever's predominant, whatever the mind, wherever, let's say, the attention goes, then awareness, we remember that wherever the attention went, like whatever's predominant, that that's being known. Well, that's what the mind is knowing. That's what the mind is feeling. That's what the mind is doing. It's knowing that. Like, in a sense, we're knowing what consciousness is conscious of. It's like almost as if the practice places a mirror there, and that mirror very effortlessly reflects what consciousness is naturally knowing. We're knowing what consciousness is knowing. Like, seeing is happening, but now, because I just mentioned it, you can be aware, not the perception, I mean, you can be aware of the perception, like what you think you're seeing, but even before that, you can even be aware that seeing, just the shape, color, whatever, the intensity of the light, that seeing is being now, and then you could also then shift to being aware of what your mind is making up based on the experience of seeing, like the objects, the perception of what's being seen. And then that next moment, awareness could know that hearing's being known, or the ache in the buttocks is being felt, or that thought, I just said the word buttocks, is being known. Right, it's like whatever it is, one moment after another, it just can be another thing to recognize that's being known. And that's all about building the momentum. So let me share some of these principles that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote in the book. The Buddha says, you know, in one of the teachings that all wholesome moments of mind Involved, involved sati awareness or mindful awareness. But you can't be wholesome, setting like wholesome karma, setting good in motion, planting seeds for your well-being and the well-being of others, without being present. That's sort of an interesting and, and somewhat provocative statement. So the first of these principles of awareness that Thich Han has is all dharmas, you could, 
this use of the word dharma or dhamma is really could be translated as all experience our mind so what that means is like this moment your reality your experience at this moment and this moment and this moment so any moment is just a moment of mind so if you're sitting and you're hearing what I'm saying and you're connected with the meaning your mind is making of the words that I'm speaking, that experience you're having is a moment of the mind or the, it's a mind moment you could say. And there's always one mind moment after another and, and our whole life is just a succession of mind moments. So you see something like there's a flash of lightning. when. My partner and I were in Milwaukee over the weekend for our nephew got married, and uh, we were driving to the uh, ceremony yesterday, late afternoon, and it was just this amazing clap of lightning, or of uh, thunder, out of the blue. I mean, there was no rumbling. I mean, it, it, we knew it was stormy, but it was pretty quiet, you know? And then all of a sudden, it felt like it was right there. Like, we didn't know it was a clap of thunder for a few seconds. It was like, you know, just like, what was it? I mean, first there's just the visceral uh, reaction in the body energetically. And then there's that sort of scrambling of the mind, like, what the hell was that? And then the kind of dawning, that must have been lightning or thunder. Um, but it's just interesting, like, to uh, be aware, like, it's not the, the process of being aware, it's just that recognition that every one of those moments, like in that, whatever that 10 second span was, was just a moment of mind. And a moment of mind is, is always two things that we can't separate, but we can talk about a moment of mind as the coming together of two things. There's an experience being known, and that's a moment of mind. And your whole life, what we call my life, reality, right, has only been a succession of those something being known. And just to bring this point home, that experience of something being known, where does that happen, you know, like in common language? It happens here. And here, this is a moment of mind, right? So even though I heard that clap of, of thunder, that was something being known in the mind. That's what it was. First there was a sound being known, and then there was the energetic reverberation, you know, the fear and the surprise and just the, you know, just the sort of energetic thing that that does to us, being known, right? Which was another moment of mind where something was being known. And then there was, what, what the hell was that? that confusion, or whatever, being known. And then there was that dawning, you know, almost like uh, you, you know you're safe, and you just experience something interesting, it's like, oh, that was thunder, you know, being known. And then the next day, we were driving, oh, seeing is being known, or whatever, breaking is being known. And you see how radically different, and, Part of our practice of awareness, because this is a central part of the Buddhist teachings, it's really the, 
building block of all the many different teachings that the Buddha taught, but we have to understand that it depends on taking this, it's kind of a radical subjective view, because life is subjective. <laughs> this is part of the point the Buddha is saying. Because when we're in our thought about, like, I'm at common ground, and I'm really interested in Buddhist uh, meditation practice, and my friend told me about this place, and I've been doing this for this many years, and, uh, and on and on like that, those are just a succession of thoughts being known. And if there's some emotional tone with those thoughts, that's just that, you know, energetic, emotional flavor being known. Each of those moments of knowing is a moment of mind, or being known in the mind, you could say, too. And the thing about that first principle, and it's not Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, he's just articulating his, you know, particular way of, the, you know, articulating the Buddhist teachings. But it's really helpful to break it, that little teaching that all dhammas are mine, all experience, is a moment of this being known in the mind. It really uh, challenges the meaning, you know, that we construct with language about who I am and what's happening and what this all is all about, right? Because it's just, we can reduce, deconstruct any moment, all of moments, to something being known. And that's what we're keeping in mind. That's our practice. That simplistic and profound way of understanding. And the thing is, it doesn't make us dysfunctional in our complicated lives to keep remembering this is being known. Being in the car with my partner for five and a half hours or so on Friday and then again this morning coming back, you know, lots of time to have nice conversations and difficult conversations and everything in between, right? This is a great thing about being in the car with a good good friend for a long time. It's really, a great, it can be at least a great time to process. But even in the most intense or beautiful moments, it was just that experience being known. And even if there was a really beautiful upwelling of love or really terrific, hor horrific, like, <laughs> which can happen, right, in, rela in close relationships. Um, but whatever that was, was just a moment, this being known, this being felt. There was a knowing and something that was being known. Just like this moment, isn't anything more than something being known. And any reaction you have to what I'm saying is just something being known. Or if you're really digging it, <laughs> that is something being known. And that's this first principle. And this is a little, another piece to that, what he, when he was sort of writing this section, he wrote, the object of cognition and the subject of cognition do not exist independently of each other. Because that's, in Buddhism, we call that wrong view. 
like, you know, I see you over there, and we think that the scene is here, me, and I'm seeing that person over there. But the scene, right, <coughs> and the object scene are happening here. And the sense of location, like over there, that's a thought that's being known here. Does that make sense? Now we're not, the Buddha's not bothering to argue like, is there an external reality or not? Just tell me. Because that's a thought being known here and now in the space of the mind. The space of the present moment is really the same as saying the space of the mind. Right? Because the present moment, the mind, is always something being known. And that something being known it, it, would, it only makes sense to say that's happening in a moment of mind. I mean, just how we use English. Or you could use heart, a moment of the heart. But here and now, where things are known, makes sense we'd call that the mind. Being felt. Where are things felt? Here. What do you mean here? Well, I'm sensitive. Well, where is it? Well, I guess the mind's sensitive. Right? So that's what we mean by mind or heart. That place where things are felt or known. That's what we mean by the mind. So in that sense, nothing is really independent of the mind. There's this, uh, some of you know Guy Armstrong, a wonderful teacher, um, mostly teaches at Spirit Rock. He's getting up there in his age now, but still teaches at IMS a little bit um, in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society, and Spirit Rock is just north of uh, San Francisco, and he lives close by the Spirit Rock, so he teaches there a little bit more frequently. And he wrote, by the way, a wonderful book called Emptiness, uh, not that long ago, it's really quite good. But anyway, uh, this is a long time ago, 25 years ago, I remember guys saying to me, or to other group that was there, um, this sort of mind experiment, like imagine you're in deep, deep space, so deep that there are no stars in front of you, and you're just there, somehow, <laughs> floating in deep, deep space, looking, seeing, of course, nothing, because there are no stars over there, nothing to reflect light or generate light. But there happens to be a big star behind you at a safe distance, shining light this way, right? But there's nothing over there to reflect that light back. So would you see anything if there were a star behind you? No, you don't see anything. But if somebody behind you, you know, throws a boomerang or something comes floating by, it's going to immediately reflect the light. Right? So it's just, a, it's just a thought experiment, right? And it isn't meant to be literal, but it, it gives you the sense of like how, in a sense, awareness can be at the ready, so whenever anything, you know, whenever there are the causes and conditions for an experience to be, uh, to be there, then there's going to be the capacity, the potential to know it. Oh yeah, that's being known, that's being seen, can be seen. But the awareness you know, we, 
it isn't something that we do. It's like that natural, the natural conditions. And that's really important because otherwise our practice can slip into this idea that I'm focusing on experience. And then it gets cumbersome, like, well, what should I focus on? As opposed to there's this very released, receptive openness where wisdom, you could say, is recognizing, you know, just noticing what's being known. Well, this conditioned phenomena is arising and being known. And awareness, or wisdom and awareness, knows that it's being known. Oh, this thought is being known. This, is, this emotion is being felt. And that you can get a sense in that openness, in that receptivity, you get a sense of the balance or the equanimity that can be there. That's really important to begin to sense that potential for balance or equanimity or you could say non-reactivity. So here's the second principle. And it's obviously related to the first. So the first, all dharmas, all dharmas, that word, you know, it has different ways it gets used in Buddhism. Like even including dharma can mean the Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist practices even. But in this case, especially like when it's lowercase, the D is lowercase, dhammas generally gets referred to as experience, conditioned experience. So all experience are mind. All experience is being known in the mind. Or all of this reality is something being known. That's the first principle. The second one is to observe is to be one with the object of observation, right? So uh, another place he writes, mindfulness is the observing mind, but it does not stand outside of the object of observation. So even though we talk about it as something being known as two things, our subjective experience, you can't tease out the something that's being known from that, from the fact that it is being known. But that doesn't mean we can't like highlight in our experience that, that it's being known, but to still the something. But I know, you know, the something because it's being known. Or we can emphasize the something that's being known. But we don't emphasize the being known. We're interested in the kind of the something that's being known. Just like, you know, I can look at the sconce above your head and I can realize that that light is being known. I can really, in a sense, lean back into being known, that it's being known, it's being known. Or, in a sense, I can get interested in the object that's being known, you know, the specific characteristics of that visual experience. But it's always, forever, something being known. And it has, the something being known has those two characteristics, the particulars that are being known. Particulars of the vision, the visual experience, the auditory experience, the tactile experience, even a thought that's being known. You know, the particulars of that thought. And the important thing about that 
point, the second principle, the to observe is to be one with the object of observation, is we have to realize, like when we realize something is being known, and they can't be separated because even the way that the mind is knowing, that is kind of uh, affected by habit. You could say like filters. I'm knowing, but the knowing is irritating. It has, uh, it's being affected by irritation or longing or all kinds of old conditioned habits. And so in that sense, the observing is um, participating in what's being known or the way the mind is relating, the way the mind is observing, affects what's being known. That's why you and I can do something together and have that experience, like even the experience of the thunderclap, you know, and somebody might be really traumatized by that. Like I can imagine, uh, I had a, uh, my cousins visited us when I was a kid. They had, uh, I think they had seven or eight kids. We had seven kids. so. I remember, like, and they were all about our age. I hung out at our house for a while, and then they drove on to Colorado, and the family was going up to one of those, like Pikes Peak or one of those places where they have a highway that goes pretty high up the mountain, and they stepped out of the car, and my cousin, who was like three years older than me, immediately got struck by lightning, died. Uh, didn't immediately die. They put her back in the car. Of course, they had to drive back to the... You know, civilization, and um, back then, before they had cell phones, of course, and uh, yeah, died at some point, you know, in the car or at the hospital, I forget exactly where, but um, I can't forget what the point was about that graphic story, sorry about that. Um, Oh, thank you, yeah. At first. Yeah, so like one of my other cousins that was crammed into that station wagon, you know, if they were in the car with me, you know, they wouldn't have had, like I had in, after about three seconds, I had a really sense of wonder. Like, whoa, that was impressive, <laughs> you know. But somebody else, you know, that would have retry, you know, just the triggering and any trauma left over to losing your sister, of course, that would have been the dominant experience for them. So we can have very different experiences because of our history of experience. And that's the filter, you know, like the way the mind is knowing the experience, it gets colored. It's almost like as I'm experiencing, as the mind is knowing, the knowing gets colored by any sort of past conditioning that now is, in a sense, being drawn to the surface and affecting how the mind is experiencing, knowing the experience. And I've, I'm sure you've seen this with friends, where you're, uh, you know, you're just observing your friend, you're having, but something happens, and it's almost like you see something shift, like the past conditioning of that person start, starts and comes online, and they, the person shifts. I just had this happen not, not too long ago. And it's just like, oh yeah, this is bringing up some stuff for you. And the question is, is a person aware 
of how the mind is relating, how the mind is being open, like how the openness or the receptivity is being colored by the past conditioning, how the past is conditioning how the mind is knowing. And sometimes there's enough wisdom and enough experience to be aware, you know, I've really been triggered. My mind isn't so trustworthy right now because it's really like my perceptual process is has really been affected by what just got triggered. So let's put off, you know, let me just be with my experience and then it will clear at some, you know, at some point. And then I'll, I can trust that this is being known. And we can get better at knowing the filter that's operating. Like sometimes we can't put it off. You know, it would be, wouldn't be appropriate. So we, we keep aware how much I want this person to like me, even though, you know, you're at the cash register and you've had a hardcore attraction to the person for a long time, but they're the only cashier. <laughs> or something like that, you know. And, you know, you, you can remain aware and it still may be somewhat clumsy, but all those sort of different impulses to close down or take a chance, you know, wisdom can be aware of it to some degree and not get lost in any of the ways the mind is coloring the experience. And that the, the important thing is not to imagine, because the danger comes when we imagine there's me having an experience and we can wrongly presume that the experience that I'm knowing is the way it actually is. But we should always understand that the experience that's being known is being colored by how the mind is knowing. And that it, we, we need some built-in humility, like I don't always know how the past is shaping how I'm knowing this experience. In fact, I can know that I don't know how it's affecting it. Which means that we keep an open mind that what I'm experiencing, how much is it the object and how much is it the way the mind's relating to the object? I don't really know. Is that a dog that's gonna terrorize me or is it actually a cute dog and all my fear of dogs showing up together. And so I'm interpreting being around that dog as dangerous, but it may be more about my past conditioning than about this cute little dog that I've run into on the sidewalk. And we can get better at that, you know, and you, you see that people who are working with ways that they've been traumatized, if they've got some good support, they can get really good at understanding like there's an experience. I mean, it's just all part of this general uh, thing in psychology, you know, that we could call desensitization, right? It's like you're afraid of heights, you know, and you walk across the Franklin Bridge. It's real close to here, if you don't know about it, just the bridge over the Mississippi, you know, and you just, you learn like the scene of whatever you're seeing is just that. And then there's all this other stuff being known, right? And you can just, you know, 
notice like what you're paying attention to and what that triggers and just start to kind of get clear it's everything is just something being known but the mind gets falls into a pattern where it's reinforcing like the way it's making up meaning reinforcing the sense of threat and but we can perceive in other ways we can bring other things to mind like the amount of concrete <laughs> under my feet you know and the other people seeming very relaxed you know in the cars walking on the bikes right and that can change our experience and this is quite humbling to realize that uh we can't we can't believe the reality this is really what we mean by perception if there's a constructing process like perception is a constructed experience it's not a pure experience and that humility uh knowing that our perception is constructed something being known but there's a that process of something being known as being colored by the past conditioning can't help it you're not doing that that's a natural unavoidable process that the past is always shaping how we're experiencing the present that's how we know there's a past in a way because there's no like past behind me you know we can't like touch or point to the past If I tell you a story from my past, that's happening now. So the but we know the past exists because in the something being known, it's being colored. So that influence like the way it's being colored could only come from past conditioning. That's how we know the past. How this is being shaped colored constructed the past lives on in the present moment by the way the mind constructs the present moment that's how we know the past you want to know the future like this is a buddhist understanding of karma the way we know the future is so then here my mind is constructing something in the present moment and that construction is a uh, arises because of the past influences living on to the latent tendencies left over right the reverberations latent tendencies left over from the past conditioning affecting how this moment is perceived and understood and now how we relate to the present moment the meaning the mind the perception the mind is creating now that's its emotion the future how we're relating to whatever we've constructed affected by past conditioning and how the mind relates to that like if we relate to that as hey this is just something being known can't really separate out the observer from what's being observed the idea that i'm here and my experience is somewhere else being known that's part of what's being known that's how the past the self view the dualistic sense that there's a me having an experience 
That's how the past is affecting this present moment. That's a habit from the past affecting this moment now. So that alienated sense of separation, there's a me having experience, that's just a reverberation from the past. But here in the present, selfing can happen, but there can be an awareness, oh, that's just something being known now. You see, so that sets in motion a different future. But if we just believe that meaning the mind is created from the past, then we're sort of doubling down on the past conditioning. Does that make sense? We don't want to double down on the past conditioning, unless you're already fully awake, right? Because the past conditioning has quite a bit of ignorance woven into it. Ignorance in the sense of not seeing clearly not understanding deeply. I'll just do one more before we end, and then we'll come back next Sunday. I'll finish this. This is from Joseph Goldstein, a really wonderful book. Um, Joseph is a really important teacher of mine, and his book, Insight Meditation, highly recommended. Anyway, his, uh, he, I think it's the chapter on karma. He writes, The power of mindfulness as a force in the mind lies in awareness of what is present without identifying with the experience, without identifying with the knower, that's, that is where the freedom is. So we have the sense of the observer knowing the experience that's being known, but we don't, we don't take what's being known as mine, and we don't take the knowing as me or mine. We keep it really radically simple. Something is being known. And then there's a completeness or a wholeness to that. It doesn't need anything more like this moment when we recognize that it's just this experience being known. It's not like the mind needs to say anything more about the present moment. It's enough to know that it's this experience being known. That's what we mean by intimacy or being open or being aware. It means that simplicity of this is being known. And if there is anything extra added because the way the past is affecting the present, then that's just the next thing being known. That's being known. Okay, now this is being known. And just to kind of give you something to think about, I'll do the third principle here. The true mind and the deluded mind are one. <laughs> I like this one. And Thich Nhat Hanh writes, things in their true nature and illusions, or you could say delusions, are the same basic substance. Right? Things in their true nature and illusions, delusions are the same basic substance. That is why practice is a, is a matter of transforming deluded mind and not a matter of seeking for a true mind elsewhere. We're not going from delusion or being a bad person to someplace else. So whatever despicable, unskillful qualities you're noticing in your mind, right, in your patterns, habits, we don't have to go somewhere else. We just need to understand this is being known. That's how we transform. You're really greedy, 
you're really hateful, you're really disconnected, completely lost in doubt or confused. All that needs to happen, it's, it's barely any movement at all, it's just that recognition, this confusion is being known. And try it sometime, like when you're, don't wait for the worst reaction, but just like you're slightly irritated, you're slightly greedy, and then just practice. And why practice? We mean recognizing that the greediness is being known. It's just this felt experience, sensed experience being known, the greediness. And you'll see it get transformed from what we'd say a problem that I have, because I want something, I'm greedy, right? I want something, and that promise, if I get it, it's going to be great. And if I don't get it, I'll be disappointed to greediness being known, feels like this, just this being known. It's not much of anything. So whatever the problem was of me wanting something can be transformed in a moment of mindfulness. Now you have to check this out because it sounds a little magical for me to have said it in the way I, that I just did. But when you're angry, when you're greedy, when you're deluded or caught in some less than skillful pattern, then if you can remember to recognize that it's something being known, notice the visceral energetic release. The mind was, in a sense, caught in the oppressive pattern, identified with the irritation, the anger, the greed, whatever. And then all of a sudden it realizes it's just this being known. And you'll learn in a little way each time this point that Thich Nhat Hanh is making that the true mind and the deluded mind are one. They're not in like different places. We never have to get from here to safety. We have to realize that the release, the safety, the freedom that the heart seeks is here. Because what value is real freedom if it isn't here, I've got to go somewhere to get it? Real freedom, what the heart really wants is not to have to run somewhere, go somewhere. It wants to realize it's already okay. It's always been okay. It doesn't mean the, it's like even the world being the mess that it is and the injustice and the aging process and all this stuff that are true in this kind of relative sense about our lives and our world, there's something that is profoundly okay. Meaning, it doesn't mean we don't care about it, but caring about it is okay. And feeling overwhelmed by, by it is, can also be okay. And being confused by it can be okay. Because it's an experience being known. And again, this can't be conveyed with words, but the words can hopefully encourage you to investigate directly in your experience this point that I'm bringing up. But we have some time before we have to end. Be nice to hear if you have a couple questions from what I've said tonight. And like I mentioned, we'll continue this Next Sunday evening, you can hear all five. Yeah, what comes to mind? Yeah, please. And uh, Jake has the mic so we can all hear each other. Um, 
I've just been really confused in my own practice about um, when I'm when, the, when something's being known and I'm removing like the like I'm realizing that that this process that's being known is impersonal. How do I um, without like like I want to maintain a sense of self, but I don't want to invest in that. Like historically, I have sort of sacrificed my sense of self to others. And, and I, I want and feel myself in these moments of tension, wanting to hang on to like this is self, but then I'm having trouble like releasing into that like this is being known. So I, I guess I'm, what is the difference between like realizing that it's an impersonal process and it's not myself, and also owning myself and taking care of my self? Yeah, I mean it's all about understanding what we mean by that word self. And self, in a sense, exists, but it's, it exists as a natural, impersonal process. And that's how we learn to embody this, what we call relative existence, where you have a name and personality, and you know we interact in that way, and we can use personal pronouns without it seeming weird. But it's because we realize that, like even now, you and I connecting around this point you made, even now, that's an impersonal process. And it's so amazing. So we can really like embody this. Just like we study, you know, other things like the clap of thunder or watching a couple animals do their thing, whatever they're doing, as a natural process, or weather blowing in as a natural process. This things that we normally would in a this relative sense call very personal, we can learn to see that, feel that, in this embodied sense, as nature. So the self, it's really a transformation of how we understand self. So we're, what we're really understanding over through study of our own experience is that that idea of being a part is just an idea being known. That never existed. The self is never getting lost, because it was never what we imagined it was. It was always, of course, just an impersonal natural process. But I mean, it just makes a lot of, just on that kind of logical, intellectual level, it makes a lot of sense, you know, that the marsh is impersonal nature over there, you know, and the woods, that's impersonal nature. But I somehow stand apart, independent of all of that kind of natural processes over there. That doesn't make sense, right? So we're really learning to come into this embodied reality that we have, because it's important, right? To have that sense of belonging, of like we belong here. It's not weird. It's like it fits better, like what we call the seeing things as they are, the impersonal nature. It actually like, huh. It's so much more functional to be relating in this way than to be neurotically projecting, you know, me back there to whom this is referring or happening to or something like that. So is it like, I feel like I'm understanding, but like, basically, I'm not my patterning, like, I'm not my reactions. Like, I'm not, yeah, patterning. I perceive whatever, I am something embodied in. It, those 
those patterns, those personality patterns are as real as anything is real, but they're also a natural process. They arise because of some conditioning processes, right? And uh, we just don't bother. It's really about slowly, gradually realizing, I don't need to tell that story that it's happening to me. It's just better to be that, you know, to be in the natural process itself than to constantly having to narrate as if it belongs to somebody, which is just a construction of the narrating mind, right? It doesn't, it just gets in the way of skillfully navigating, you know, all the different things that are showing up. Yeah, it's just a lighter, more natural, more nimble way to be human. Yeah, do you want to pass it behind you? Yeah, use the microphone. I probably say it. I was going to say, but isn't the aging part of the natural process? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, it, it can seem to be whether sad or painful or diminishing of the, of the body, and, but it's also part of it's It's all part of it. Yeah, even even losing clarity in the mind as we age. Like I've been, like I, you know, it's totally spaced up. I was saved, <laughs> but it's like that happens more and more. I'm 65. I'm sure other people recognize it too. And it's so helpful to understand that as not a personal failing, you know. And that this is such a tragedy that bodies get sick, and then on top of that, we personalize the illness as if it's like a personal failing. It does seem like our culture, though, almost sells, you know, like, like medical, you know, what do they call it? The freezing body, you know, prolonging age or giving surgeries to a 90-year-old or that perhaps would be better off without, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but even that ignorance of wanting to live forever. Fear, though, I mean. But that also arises as a natural process. Like when there is this idea, this very pervasive idea of me back there somewhere, well then, of course, with that evolutionary survival instinct, then we're, we're, it's going to feel as if that me back there really wants to survive, right? So it, all of the sort of strange stuff that we humans do to live forever, you know, it's all natural. But just because it's natural doesn't mean it isn't stressful and debilitating. And that's the great thing about awareness that has been uh, been cultivated that isn't about, isn't really coming from a particular frame or with a particular agenda. It's like a mirror that simply reflects back because that's what the mirror does. does it, the mirror doesn't have an agenda of reflecting back to prove a point. No, no, it's just reflecting back. And that wisdom awareness is just reflecting back. And so any of these patterns to, you know, egoic patterns to protect this imagined sense of a permanent me back there that wants good stuff, doesn't want bad stuff, wants to live forever, all of that is just experiences seen as heavy and un unnecessary. So it's naturally, the natural process just abandons it because it, it doesn't have function but it has to be seen as extra before it can be abandoned.
Otherwise, patterns in this sort of system tend to replicate themselves over and over again. So we keep doing the same thing and getting the same result. Yeah, thanks for the comments. We need to leave it here. It's 8.30. Just take a few seconds, just enough time to open to the silence and take a couple breaths before we say goodnight. And we're probably all aware of, you know, in our own lives and around us, this deep habit of chasing our tails one way or the rat race one way or another. So we've had the good fortune to run into these profound and useful teachings because people before us, they had complicated lives too, right? But somehow, through so many generations for these 2,500 years, people have done the practice, gained some real wisdom, passed the teachings along one generation after another. Now it's landing with us, these teachings and practices. It's our turn to do our best to become wiser, kinder, clearer, more awake folks so we can be part of this continuation of the human wisdom, really, passing it along. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.